Hey, Rob. Yo, what's up, Mike? How you doing, buddy? Pretty good, man. We got a huge show today, man. Oh, yeah, definitely. We're talking about, um, like, this is our rock show episode 86, and we're talking about the birds. Yeah, yeah, definitely one of the most important rock bands ever, definitely of the 60s. Um, Let me ask a question. That documentary, um, how did you find that documentary? That was, like, pretty pretty good for a free documentary on. Yeah, um, there's, it's called Under Review, and it's a, it's a British series. They do it with a lot of bands. Yeah, uh, yeah. Some of the research for shows we've done, I've gotten from that. They went through a lot of details. Like it oh, was, yeah. it was like wow, man. It was intense. I was like, holy shit, man. These guys really go through a lot of shit. I was like, it was impressive. Like they went through a lot of. They went through most of the history. Yeah, I mean, it was a good two hours, right? Almost. Two yeah, hours. it was like two Five. hours. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is one of those shows that I'm really excited about because. You know, a lot of times we talk about bands and I, I know everything about the band. I'm not like really that surprised by much. But with the research on this, it just definitely gave me a whole new respect for this band. Uh, just how important they were. And I think that they're kind of, you know, not mentioned as much anymore. But they were America's answer to the Beatles for a little while, you know. Yeah, because I was shocked. Like, um, these guys, they are the tambourine man. They, they were doing covers and all this other stuff. And. And they were doing stuff to get noticed. And they were like, even to one of them, some of them were doing Beatles cover. <laughs> well, right. I mean, that's that's how they met, actually. Uh, you know, their love for the Beatles and Roger McGuinn playing Beatles songs. But we'll get into all that. Um, it's just an amazing story. It's only about eight, eight nine years that they existed. Um, but they just did so much in that time. And, and, and they're kind of like, they weren't the same band. When they ended, you know, they had a lot of lineup changes. But oh, yes. somehow they, they, you know, McGuinn is, Roger McGuinn is just such an amazing songwriter. Uh, he really, like, at some point, he was really the only original guy left. And he was still pumping out, you know, amazing songs. Yeah, they were, even with all the lineup changes, they were still yeah. having, they were still having great stuff, you know. They were still putting out great songs. And. They also had some really good producers and people that were working for, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they had top-notch guys. Uh, Columbia Records backed them up pretty well all those years. Uh, they can't complain about that. Um, Did you which, think it was weird, that lineup with, like, fucking three guitarists and one bass? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it worked, you know? Because I'm looking at that. To me, when I look at it, I thought it was, like, a little bit overcrowded and but they played great music. Yeah. I mean, well, I, when Graham Parsons was in the band, they, they had that. Uh, he yeah. played keyboards and he also played guitar. So sometimes you had the three. Uh, but that was only for a short time they did that. It was usually just two. Yeah. You know. But all right. So let's let's get started, man. I got a lot of notes here. I got a lot of information. It's going to be a long show. Buckle in. You ready? Yeah. And these guys are, and these guys are California guys, right? California guys all the way. Pretty much. We, we don't do too many California bars. We've done a lot of, I mean, uh, bands. We've done a lot of, um, like, a lot, a few England and a lot of New York bands, but we really don't do, like, too many California. Yeah, well, I, you know, there, there's definitely some we could touch on. Um, but you're right. We, we've been kind of like East Coast guys, I guess, just because that's where we're from. Yeah. You know? So the Birds formed in 1964 when Jim McGuinn, uh, who was 
Roger McGuinn, same person, Jim yeah. McGuinn, Gene Clark, and David Crosby, they harmonized in a stairwell at the Troubadour Bar in Los Angeles. And that was really how it all got started. But the three of them had a folk music background going back several years. Um, McGuinn was with a band called the Limelighters and also the Chad Mitchell Trio. Clark had been with the new Christy Minstrels and Crosby was with the Les Baxter's Balladeers. And that's the same Crosby that went on to singing later with um, Crosby, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Yeah, this guy's another guy that that one day we'll have to talk about too. Yeah, I mean, he's got a great story. I don't know if you remember, uh, you know, the trouble he got into in the 80s. He did some time yeah. for, like, for, <laughs> for, for drugs and everything. Yeah, he's a good, he's somebody we could talk about. Yeah. Um, McGuinn had also spent some time in New York City as a professional songwriter at the famous Brill Building. Okay. And he was working under the guidance of Bobby Darren. So they had this like interesting folk songwriting background. But by 1964, McGuinn was tiring of his folk music past and was enjoying the new sounds of the Beatles music out there. So McGuinn had been doing a side project performing Beatles songs acoustically at the Troubadour. Uh, He was approached by another folky turned Beatles fan, Gene Clark. Now, this was at the Troubadour, and they had soon started performing acoustically together. Okay, the two of them, Gene Clark and and McGuinn. Okay. So David Crosby one day approached the two and they started to sing Beatles songs together in this stairwell at the club. So they said, wow, this, this sounds great. We need to start a band. So they started a trio called the Jet Set. And it was a name inspired by uh, McGuinn's love of aeronautics. So Crosby had a good connection. He had been recording demos on his own at the World Pacific Studios. So he introduced his associate, Jim Dixon, to the other two. And Dixon, immediately seeing a lot of talent, became their manager. So a friend of Dixon's named Eddie Tickner joined up, and he became their accountant and financial manager. Uh, Dixon then booked them time at World Pacific, and it was here that they would kind of rehearse and record as a trio. Their style became a perfect blend of the Beatles and Bob Dylan. Okay, uh, Bob Dylan kind of folk music. Um, There was a fourth member to be added on to the jet set. Drummer Michael Clark, he's no relation to Gene, was added in mid-1964. He wasn't really the greatest drummer. They knew this. Okay. Yeah. In fact, he didn't even own a drum kit. Uh, He really just, (laughs) he had done some, he had done some percussion playing Congo, Congas and stuff like that in another band, but what they liked about him was he had a great Brian Jones-style bowl haircut, and he looked good. All right, so initially at the rehearsals, he, he would play on cardboard boxes because he didn't have a drum kit, and he also played the tambourine. Wow. Yeah. Dixon uh, would arrange a one-off singles deal, okay, for the band, and that would be with Electra Records, uh, founded by Jack Holzman. Uh, the single was two originals, one called Please Let Me Love You and the other one called Don't Be Long. And they featured the vocal harmonies of McGuinn, Gene Clark, and Crosby. But the session musicians that were used were Ray Pullman on bass, Earl Palmer on drums. Michael Clark didn't play on this single, okay? Uh, and these guys didn't play their, their instruments either at first, okay? They were just harmonizing. So 
they would actually change their name from the Jet Set just for this single. And they picked a, what they thought was a British invasion sounding name. They called themselves the Beefeaters. Yeah, the Beefeaters. Yeah. So the single got released by Elektra on October 7th of that year, but it didn't chart. That was in 64. Um, in August of 64, Dixon finally, uh, excuse me, Dixon acquired an acetate disc of an unreleased Bob Dylan song called Mr. Tambourine Man. That's a great he, song. Yeah, and he and he thought, wow, the Jet Set could record this and do a great cover. Okay, initially, the band didn't like the song. Okay, they didn't want to do it for different reasons, but they just, they didn't like the song. So, you know, he, he kind of said to him, listen, work on it. All right, so they rehearsed it. And they kind of gave it a, a rock and roll makeover a little bit. They sped the song up a little bit. And uh, in the process, they, they, they kind of were unsure if they were doing it right. So Dixon actually invited Bob Dylan himself down to the World Pacific Studios to hear the band do the song. And he said to them, he was really impressed. And he said, wow, man, you can dance to that. Okay. So Dylan given his blessing on it was all they really needed to boost their, their confidence. Yeah. Uh, that, that, you know, they had whatever doubt they had was gone at that point. Mike, you so, know what's the funny thing about these guys? Like all these guys were folk singer. And once the British invasion came, it pretty much killed that kind of genre, right? Like yeah, there was no I mean, more folk you, singers. Right. If you, if you watch the under review documentary, which I know you did, you saw some examples of the folk scene that was going on. Yeah, that, I thought that was amazing. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the British invasion put the nail in the coffin for that kind of music. It was kind of rock and roll came along. It was kind of dying down, but it held on for a few years. But just when the Beatles came, that just knocked everything for a loop. See, because... Can you believe how that thing just killed that gender? That, that, well, but, that no, the Bob, Beatles Bob, came in like Rolling Bob Stone? Dylan, Bob Dylan killed it too. Yeah. Okay? And he came out of that scene... Yeah. Okay, that's where he started. You know, you got to understand something. It's kind of hard to, to capture it now because the world is so different. But back then, pop songs, whether they were pop or, or rock and roll pop kind of thing, what the Beatles started out with and, and what the early days of rock and roll talking about love and not serious stuff, folk people took their music very seriously. And they were kind of almost like obnoxious about it. Like they felt that they were the only genre that could sing about uh, socially conscious things. <laughs> okay. And Bob Dylan came along and he, he definitely sang about socially conscious things, but he had a bit of a pop element to him. Oh, he definitely had a that, pop element. Well, he's, yeah, I mean, definitely he is in, in some ways. But the folkies, the old traditional folkies hated him. They just, even though he was straight out of the folk scene, okay, they just felt that he was like a young upstart. What does he know? It was a very elite kind of thing. And they didn't view rock and roll or pop music as anything other than a joke. It wasn't meant to be taken seriously. But what was happening was the Beatles came along you know, and, and in, 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 in 65, 66, they're, they're singing about paperback writer and like, you know, more like serious songs. Okay. And, and 
that could never have been done before in in pop music okay and the folkies kind of had that serious theme all right but it just it took it all away from them it just ended it for them and then when dylan went electric i think that was in 66 um at the newport folk festival there was rumors that he was working on an electric album folkies didn't like electric they didn't like electric guitars they played one of the acoustic yeah oh you know uh but the birds, they wanted to combine these two things, okay? And they did it unbelievably well. And they did it by using some of Dylan's music and then their own originals, obviously, later on, you know? Yeah. Now, the Beatles movie, A Hard Day's Night, would be released and the band would want to get the same instruments the Beatles had in the movie, okay? So Michael Clark got himself finally a Ludwig drum kit. Gene Clark would get a Gretsch guitar, although Crosby would kind of snatch it from him at some point. Because uh, usually you just see Clark playing the tambourine. Right? Yeah. But McGuinn would get his signature 12 string guitar at that point. And that was the key. He, he would play that for the rest of the, I, I think that's all he plays now, even too. And, and uh, he, that's what he's known for is that 12 string guitar sound, that jangly guitar. Yeah. In, yeah. In October, bassist and mandolin player Chris Hillman would be added to the group. They needed a bottom, so they had to have a bass player. Hillman had a country and bluegrass background, and he played in several bands like that, bluegrass and country. But the following month, in November 64, Dixon would get the jet set signed, and it would be the Columbia Records. And yeah. Over their Thanksgiving dinner that month, they would change the name of the jet set to the birds okay and it was a combination of uh you know uh mcguinn liked like things related to flight aeronautics things like that and they deliberately misspelled the name like the beatles had misspelled their name yeah okay so it was a combination of that um on january 20th of 65 the Birds went into the Columbia Studios in Hollywood to record Mr. Tambourine Man <laughs> as their first single for the label. Yeah. Now, the band musically really hadn't gelled at that point yet. Okay, the, the, the vocals were there, but musically they weren't quite there yet. And McGuinn is actually the only member to play on that single. Okay, and it's B-side, which was called I Knew I'd Want, uh, I Knew I'd Want You. Okay. Yep. And that was actually written by Gene Clark. Gene Clark wrote a lot of songs. Uh, producer Terry Melcher was hired, okay, to do the album and the, the single. And uh, he hired the Wrecking Crew, which was a group of musicians. They were session musicians that played on a lot of stuff in the 60s. We're going to do a show on the Wrecking Crew. They're, they're definitely an interesting group because they, 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 they also were hired a lot of times to play for a lot of different um well, all those, all those Phil Spector stuff in the 60s, a lot of it was the, the, the wrecking crew with the music. That's crazy. That, and these guys, you know what? They, they were good. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Glenn Campbell was, was part of the wrecking crew. Yep. You know? Um, McGuinn, Clark, and Crosby sang the vocals. McGuinn played a little bit of his 12-string guitar on Mr. Tambourine Man. But the drums, the bass, and everything, that was strictly session musicians. So by the time March of 65 came, the band was ready to play their instruments finally. They, they got good enough. And Melcher didn't use any more 
sessions, really, people to do the songs after that for the album. And the album was called Mr. Tambourine Man. Uh, the band around that time started a residency at Ciro's nightclub at, on the Sunset Strip. And between March and April of that year, their appearances made them the hottest act to see. Uh, Kim Fowley, Peter Fonda, Jack Nicholson, Sonny and Cher, Arthur Lee from the band Love. They were all regularly seen at bird shows. Okay. And they knew that they did. They knew this guy. Um, what's his name? The the mayor of the Sun Street. Um... Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely. They all knew uh, Rodney Bingenheimer. Absolutely. Absolutely. He was friends with them. Uh, like, let me let me ask you a quick question. But you know what's the amazing thing? All these guys could easily be a leader of their own band. Yeah. I mean, it's not often you have. Like these are five guys that could all sing and could actually lead a band. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they could all they could all sing good. You know, same with the Beatles, right? I mean, the Beatles yeah. were the same way. Um, now on March 26th, Bob Dylan himself came down to the club and joined the band on stage for a version of Jimmy Reed's "Baby, What You Want Me to Do." The excitement generated by the birds would would result in lines down the street to get into this club. Wow! Okay. It was like chaos all of these kids though they were like the first real like hippies okay they were the young bohemians of that time and that west coast hippies culture was just starting to bubble up in that in that scene now the single for mr tambourine man was released on april 12 1965 and um it was an original sounding blend of folk and rock and roll something nobody had ever tried. So the vocal harmonies of Clark, Crosby, and McGuinn, and McGuinn's jangly 12-string was immediately recognized as a new sound, and it stays influential to today. You know who's a band who was huge and definitely you know, was influenced by the birds? R.E.M. Who? Who? R.E.M. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely, definitely, especially early on, you know. Um, you know, you know what the funny thing that um, that that Mr. Tambourine, um, that then became a smash hit. It was number one in the UK and the US. Right, it would reach number one in the US within three months in England, also. Okay, but think and, about an American band like that with that whole the Beatles and all that stuff going number one in the US. That's huge. It was, it and was. also going number one in in UK. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, they had that smash hit right away, you know, which is not easy to do. Um, in June of 65, the Mr. Tambourine Man album came out, all right? And it got to number six in America and number seven in the UK. Yep. Now, some of the standouts are kind of a reworking of a poem that folk singer Pete Seeger adapted called The Bells of Rimney. Yep. Uh, that's a great song. Gene Clark's, which is, this is my all-time favorite uh, bird song. I'll feel a whole lot better when you're gone. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And the other song called All I Really Want to Do. Um, this album would burst the birds into the American consciousness, okay? And it would be a direct challenge to the Beatles and the British invasion at that point. It was really like, at one point, the birds were as big as the Beatles in, in 65, Okay, it didn't last, but they 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 definitely were up there. Now, all I really want to do is a Dylan penned song, 
and that would be the next single after Mr. Tambourine Man. It was rushed as a release because Cher had done a, a version of it at the same time as The Birds. Wow. Yeah, for a different label, for Imperial Records. Now, a chart battle happened with this, and Cher's version actually got higher. Uh, she got to 15 with the song, and The Birds stalled at 40. In England, though, The Birds version would get to number four, and Cher's, wow. Cher's would only get to number nine. So I, I guess you could say it was even, right? Yeah, it was, it was pretty even. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever hear Cher's version? No. It's not bad. I mean, it's just more like poppy, you know, but uh, it's amazing that she did it at the same time. I think what happened was, I know what happened, is as soon as Mr. Tambourine Man got hit big, okay, so many people were, were rushing to Bob Dylan for music. Yeah, let me get a song. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the guy had... The guy had a bunch of albums. There was a bunch of stuff just out there that were bootlegged. People yeah. knew about Okay, uh, For years, there was something called the basement tapes. And people would draw from them before they were ever really officially released. But it was all good for Dylan, too. You know, Dylan made out like a bandit. With all you, know, you know what's the funny thing? That's not the first time in history that two songs were released at the same time, either. No, no, that's happened. Definitely. Yeah, it's happened before, which I always find. I'm, I'm always like, why? Why would that happen? Why could the two people? But it, it happened multiple times. If you yeah, look it up. I mean, remember we did Little Richard last yeah. week, right? Or what, yeah, last week or the week before. Yeah, and uh, you know, he there was his version of Tutti Fruity, and then there was Pat Burnt Boone's version of Tutti Fruity. You yeah, know? which I found was like, wow, that is weird. You know, now McGuinn was widely regarded as the Birds band leader, but in reality, McGuinn and Clark and later on Crosby and Hillman would all take turns singing lead vocals. There never really was a lead vocalist in the band. But live, the band had kind of this, in the beginning, this aloofness about them, okay? And they seemed kind of detached from the audience. But if you watch those like Turn, Turn, Turn and... and uh, Mr. Tambourine Man, the, the videos of them on TV shows and stuff. They're kind of like in their own little world. They're not really like, you know, acknowledging the audience that much. or They didn't really talk much with the audience. The truth was is that they were stoned out of their minds. Yeah. <laughs> okay. They used, to, they used to smoke so much weed before they went on. They were just in I, their own zone, you know? I figured that. And those guys were just like, <laughs> this is, who has the peace pipe? They hit that shit exactly, down. Exactly. Exactly. You know, but they and, were in the zone. Like when you saw them, they always looked like they were in the zone. Yeah, but later on in their career, they would be known for being a great live act. But it wasn't like that early on. Okay, in '65, they did a tour of England on the heels of the number one Mr. Tambourine Man. Um, they were touted. They, they were promoted in, in in England as America's answer to the Beatles. Wow, and that's a that's a label that you know would prove impossible to live up to so the tour was a problem okay their, their first tour of england was a was a, a terrible experience that they, they had a, a bunch of times it was poor sound at the shows band members got sick um spotty musicianship and and basically an overall alienation kind of from the audience and it resulted in the british press just like attacking them and i think it was because they were labeled as the answer to the beatles you know, um, 
However, on that tour, they would befriend the Beatles. They would meet them, okay? And also the Stones and a bunch of other acts. And in fact, a few weeks after meeting the Beatles in England, the Birds would party with them in Los Angeles. And the result would be influential on the Beatles and in their works on the Revolver album. Remember we talked about this? Yeah, we talked about that last week. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the time when they met them. They, they were partying with the Beatles, um, with the Birds. I'm sorry, the Beatles were partying with the Birds. And Peter Fonda was there and said, I know what it's like to be dead. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and, that, and that's how they got, you know, <laughs> off a revolver, you know. Um, their third single would be the Pete Seeger composition, Turn, Turn, Turn. Okay. And it featured lyrics from the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible. It was released October 1st, 1965, and it would be their second number one U.S. single. So they had the Mr. Tambourine Man, then they had All I Really Want to Do, and that didn't do as good. So they had to really get another, another hit, or there would have been a problem. So Turn, Turn, Turn was something that folk singer Pete Seeger, the, the godfather of folk music, had done. Um, the lyrics, like I said, were taken from the Bible and it kind of struck a chord with all Americans. Okay. Uh, the Vietnam war was ramping up yes. and the song was kind of about peace. And it, it was really an inter- it's an interesting song for the time because you had this, you know, the birds with this rock band and they had a, you know, kind of a folk background, but they were, they were a rock band and then singing a song with lyrics taken right out of the Bible. Now, that worked on so many levels for them because it, it, the, the, the song worked in, in the middle of the country, you know, in church-going places and stuff like that. Churches actually would play the song, okay, during services. Wow. Yeah, and, and so you had, like, a much older crowd listening to it, okay, but, you know, kids parents or grandparents even listening to it but okay. Mike, that song was almost like an anthem in a weird way it, it 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 is because it's kind of you could look at it two ways you could say okay uh you know to everything there's a season you know yeah uh but but it's also singing about peace and it was at a time when the the vietnam war was really starting to escalate but there hadn't been any protests yet Okay, it wasn't like what was going to happen in two years, three years. Okay, it was just starting out. Most people were for the war. Okay, so here you had this band and they're singing about peace and a war is ramping up and they're using words from the Bible. It just, I don't know, it it affected a lot of Americans, but in different ways, you know, because you could take the song so many different ways. Yeah. So. The second album would also be called Turn, 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 and that came out in December. It would get to number four, excuse me, number 17 on the U.S. charts and number 11 in the U.K. The album itself doesn't have as much of a Bob Dylan influence as their first album. No. Okay, because there's a couple of Dylan songs on that first album. This had less. But Gene Clark wrote several of the songs on this album, one called uh, She Don't Care About Time. Uh, the world turns all around her and sets you free this time. 
And these three especially sets you free this time. Yeah. Are considered classics of, of the birds. Okay. Um, set you free would be released as a single, but it's such a kind of downbeat, sad song that it, it only got to number 63 on billboard. Gene Clark was, he was like the goth guy in the band <laughs> for lack of a, a better word. Okay. He tended to write songs about pain. Okay. And, and break up and things like that. You know, I mean, he wrote, I'll feel a whole lot better when you're gone. Wow. Okay. And actually what's an interesting little tidbit on that song is the title is I'll feel a whole lot better. Okay. That's the whole title. It doesn't, it's not when you're gone. That's not in the title, but I'll feel a whole lot better. But when he sings it, he says, I'll probably feel a whole lot better when you're gone. So it adds kind of this ambiguity to it. Like, all right, what is he, what does he mean? Okay. I'll probably feel a whole lot better. Maybe I'm not sure I want to break up with you. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it's just, he wrote songs like that. Like the set you free this time song. It's, it's sung almost like a conversation. Like he's just talking to the girl. And, uh, and he says, you know, I did this, I did that. Maybe I'll set you free this time. So you'll be happy. That kind of thing. Dude, but, do you remember in the documentary where they were actually who, who was some uh, influencing musician? And one of the guys even named Charles Manson. Oh, 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 we'll get into that. Yeah, that was uh, <laughs> that was Terry Melcher. Yeah, we can. I'll, I'll, I'll bring that up when we get to I it. I thought that was like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he was talking about how awful David Crosby was. <laughs> yeah, he was yeah. shitting on him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Crosby himself, he's written two books and he's in interviews in later years. He's always been pretty candid. And he kind of says, yeah, you know, I was a shit, you know, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't easy to work with. And I, I think that's almost an understatement because there's some great stories out there of the, the craziness that he would do. But um, after Turn, Turn, Turn had been released, Jim Dixon and the Birds approached Columbia Records about releasing Terry Melcher, who had uh, who had produced two number one singles and two hit albums. Dixon had aspirations of producing the band. But Columbia assigned their West Coast head of A&R, Alan Stanton, to the band. So I think there was a bit of a, a coup attempt there by Jim Dixon, the manager, to take over the producing. But it didn't quite work. That it, They convinced the label to get rid of Terry. And that's kind of like <laughs> what we were just saying. See, Terry and Crosby didn't get along too good. Okay, And the question put to Terry, I think, years later, was, uh, you know, who who was the worst person in the music world that you ever had to deal with, that you ever came across? And he said, David Crosby. And then, and then the, the reporter was kind of like embarrassed that he even asked the question. Like, he didn't think he was going to say that. And he said, okay, well, who's the second worst? He said, Charles Manson. <laughs> I thought that was, I thought that was great. So he's, saying, he's saying that Crosby's worse than Charles Manson. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and yeah, it's it's funny. Now, <clears throat> on December twenty second, nineteen sixty five, the Birds recorded a new self written song called Eight Miles High" at the RCA Studios in Hollywood. They didn't use Columbia. Columbia Records refused to release it because it was recorded at RCA and not their own studio. Uh, I've never, you know, I've heard this story, and I never 
understood why they did it, and I've never, you know, heard a reason why they went to RCA. I guess that I guess they thought they could use any studio they want, even though they were on Columbia. I yeah. Don't know. <clears throat> but on January twenty fourth and twenty fifth of sixty six, the band re recorded it at Columbia in Los Angeles, and it's the version that you would see as the single that would come out on their third album. Now, Eight Miles High is often considered the first full-blown psychedelic rock song. Okay, I kind of tend to agree with that. Um, McGuinn was listening to a lot of free jazz, like Coltrane at that time, and he tried to play his guitar in the same way Coltrane played his saxophone. But the song Eight Miles High also had like this Indian-sounding classical music through it as well. Uh, it was a popular song, but would only get to number 14 in the United States and number 24 in the UK. <clears throat> it was it was banned, okay, in some places because certain people in certain markets thought that the lyrics were about drugs eight miles high. Yeah. Okay, that, and the band denied this, okay? Um, but, I mean, when you listen to it, I, I, I could see how you could think that, but wasn't a reason to ban it you know what i mean i don't think but at the time internal animosities within the band began pretty much right before the release of eight miles high gene clark would leave over these animosities he had yeah um not only did he have problems with crosby who treated him like shit okay he had an intense fear of flying and that was a big problem because they were touring a lot and he wouldn't get on a plane. He he had a problem getting on a plane. And you know why? Because he saw like a plane crash when he was yes. a kid, right? When he was a kid, he had seen a bad plane crash. And it just traumatized him for about, you know, for the rest of his life about ever getting on a plane. Now, there was one time there was a flight to New York City that they were going to. And he just wouldn't get on. So McGuinn told him, you know, if he doesn't fly, he's out of the band. And that was it. And he had to leave the band. Wow. Um, in reality, Gene Clark's songwriting contributions had made him the wealthiest member of the band because he wrote a lot of songs. Yeah, he was a great writer. Like when yeah. he left, it was like, and wow. I think, and I think Crosby, maybe McGuinn to some point, um, they had problems with that. They, they felt they were equal, but he had more money because he had more songwriting credits. Um, Crosby in recent years since Clark died in 1991 has admitted that he was really cruel to Gene Clark and it contributed to him leaving the band. Clark would get signed as a solo artist to Columbia and release a bunch of critically acclaimed, you know, records, but not anything commercially successful. No, no. So the bird's third album called fifth dimension was released in July, 1966 much of the album built on this new psychedelic sound. So yeah, and Chris Hillman, the bass player, kind of emerged as the band's third vocalist after Clark's departure. So they would the three of them, uh, Hillman, Crosby, and McGuinn, would harmonize now. And the title track, Five D or Fifth Dimension, was released as a single, but like Eight Miles High, it got banned supposedly for drug references. <laughs> you know. And that album was the first album that had their colorful psychedelic birds logo that you would see on the rest of their albums. That was the first time they used that. Uh, the album would peak to number 24 
And some would blame the departure of Clark as the reason why the album didn't have a lot of commercial success. Uh, I think a lot of people, fans, liked Gene Clark and him not being there. It just kind of like, you know, when he left the band, I think they lost a little bit of their fan base. Um, Between November 28th and December 8th of 66, the band recorded their fourth album, Younger Than Yesterday. So they were going right back into the studio, okay? I mean, they released an album in July. In November, they're back in the studio, okay? And that would be called Younger Than Yesterday, their fourth album. Alan Stanton, who was supposed to produce it, he had left Columbia. So they got a guy named Gary Usher, okay, to produce the record. Uh, The Birds were about to enter enter their most creative and experimental period, and Gary Usher would be very important to them in in this process. One of the first songs they worked on was a song called So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star. And it would be the first song they would work on with this new producer. Um, And it would also be released as a single in January of 67. It would get to number 29 in the U.S., but didn't even chart in the U.K. for some reason. Yeah, that's Um, wild. Yeah. Now, despite its poor commercial success, it's become one of the most popular songs of the band. Okay. And it's been covered successfully by Patti Smith and Tom Petty as well. Tom Petty did a version of it. Um, the album Younger Than Yesterday would peak at number 24 on Billboard in the U.S. and number 37 in the U.K. Now, to casual Birds fans, it was kind of overlooked, but was starting to be noticed by this kind of new emerging underground scene. The, the, the hippie scene, basically. This, this like, you know, counterculture scene started to latch on to the birds they were they were listening to them and it became very popular in that in that scene um also at that time singles were starting to not be taken that seriously in the music business anymore it was more gearing towards albums uh it had always been up until that point you know you need that hit single you gotta have that constant hit single albums are just something as an afterthought okay you got to have those couple of hit singles for every album. By 66, 67, that was starting to change. The Beatles kind of, you know, wrecked that, that idea. The Stones, you know, were making very solid albums. People were buying these records just to have the album. They didn't care about the single on there. So the birds were at the forefront of that, too. And people were starting to pick up on them as like an album-oriented band which is kind of cool. Yeah, because, you know, they had single, but they could also have some really good albums, you know? Yeah, well, it's, it, was, it, it became about a body of work, okay, not just about one song, you know? So the Younger Than Yesterday featured the Dylan song My Back Pages, which is fantastic. The Ramones do a good cover of that, too. Uh, Chris Hillman wrote four songs for the album. Um, two of them, Time Between and The Girl With No Name, had kind of a country feel to them, all right? And that would point the direction of where they were going to go after this, okay? Crosby wrote the critically acclaimed Everybody's Been Burned, which is considered one of their finest songs as well, okay? So he was doing a lot of contributing. By mid-'67, the band would record another Crosby penned theme called Lady Friend, and it was to be a non-album single, and it was released on July of that year. It would only get to number 82. 
what they were trying to do was kind of like make up for a little bit of the commercial loss they had on, you know, some recent stuff. Okay, because things hadn't been like number one or number 10 or anything no. had been in the low top 40s. So they put out this single thinking it was going to be a hit, but it bombed. Now, Crosby blamed producer Usher for the mix of the song as, as to why it failed, like, you know, his, the way he produced it. But the band was, you know, that's kind of like, that's kind of a lame excuse most of the time, blame the producer. You know, it really just it, it really just isn't a great song. I've heard it. It's just not one of their one of their best songs. And they put it out as a single. So they were they were showcasing it and it really wasn't that good. So it didn't need a showcase. <laughs> no, it didn't need it. And and you know, I don't think there was anything Gary Usher could have done with it different. Uh Crosby just, you know, didn't write a good song there. But the band was starting to have a little bit of commercial success because their first greatest hits album came out. In August of 67, it actually got to number six on Billboard and that matched their highest charting album of all time. OK, which was Mr. Tambourine Man. They never had a number one album. OK, but to know it went to number six and so did the greatest hits. Um, the greatest hits album to this point is their highest selling album ever. And it went platinum in 1986. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah, greatest hits album. Um, and that's that's actually the first record I ever bought from them. Um, I can still remember doing it. Columbia Records, 19 records for a penny, and that whole thing. And I remember getting the you know the Birds' greatest hits in there. I think on cassette. Yeah. Mike, but these guys were taking album after album, right? Like there was no downtime. No, there wasn't. And and that's how things were done back then. You know, if you, if you remember so many of the bands we covered from the 60s and, and some in the 70s, too, but mostly in the 60s, these guys work day after yeah. day. Yeah, but they you just know? finished one album. By the time you finished the other album, they were already recording two, three songs for a new album. <laughs> it was it was common to have two albums in one year. Yeah. Now people, you know, take five years off. You can't you couldn't do that in those days that you would have been it's left in dust. It's amazing. You know, like, who's the only person that try to take albums all the time? It's like Taylor Swift been taking album after album. But how much do we really want to hear from her? Yeah, uh, yeah, she needs to take a five-year break. <laughs> Grow up a little bit, you know? Uh, well, you know, she, she can... She, well, I, I guess I can hand it to her. All right? You know, she's prolific. And the birds were, too. I mean, you know, you had to be. Because there was so many... You know, in the 60s... There were so many bands, man. Yeah, there you know? were a lot of bands, man. Yeah. And and you think about bands that really didn't make it or bands that had one hit but still kind of continued on, you know, and, and there's so many of them. And then you had the super groups, but they were only hanging on by a thread. If they had a stretch of of bad stuff, they would get replaced, you know, so there was this competition. And so it was an amazing time in music. It really was. But even like the, the Yardbirds were almost like a super group. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you look back at them, you're like, yeah, they definitely were. The they time, were. Like at that time, you would never think. But then you look at the history later on and you're like, wow, man, these guys well, were like, you know, they, they, they made the Zeppelin came out of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, the Yardbirds are like the birds. OK, they're very influential. And music, if they hadn't existed, 
music would not be what it is today. No. You know. Now, Jim McGuinn, it should be mentioned at this time, would change his name to Roger McGuinn. And it was based on this religious initiation he did into a religion called Subud. Okay. And it's an Indonesian religion he was involved in. And part of the initiation is taking a new name. Okay. So he used the name Roger from now on after that. Uh, I know he's not, he's not involved with that religion anymore, but he was in the 60s. Um, now, right before the release of the Greatest Hits album, the Birds fired Jim Dixon and their financial manager, Eddie Tickner. Uh, Dixon and the band's relationship had kind of soured over the past few months, and they brought in a guy named Larry Spector to handle all the financial affairs. The band decided to manage themselves pretty much at that point. So the last half of 67 between June and December was spent working on this next studio album. It would be their fifth and it was to be called the notorious bird brothers. And the first single was a Jerry Goffin and Carol King song called going back. Uh, Carol King was from the Brill building back in New York writing for so many people. So it was something that they, I guess McGuinn probably really wanted to do. Uh, it was released as a single going back in October of 67, but it would only peak at number 89 in the U.S. Now, despite the lack of commercial success on this single, the song going back would feature a pedal steel guitar for the first time. The band would use that. And that would kind of echo what would be the new sound for them on their next album called Sweetheart of the Rodeo. Um, but... The Notorious Bird Brothers was released in January of 68. The psychedelic sound of the past albums was mixed further with folk rock, jazz, country music. Uh, there was a lot of like that, that new effect called phasing that uh, you would hear. And the Beatles were using it. Hendrix would use a lot of phasing in his music. It's that whooshing sound, you know, that psychedelic sound. Um, session bluegrass musician Clarence White was brought in and he would eventually in time become a full member of the birds, but not yet. Um, he was brought in to kind of like bring in some more country influence guitar on uh, songs like natural harmony uh, changes now. And I wasn't born to follow, which is another one of my all time favorite bird songs. Um, the album would only peak at number 47, but it was critically acclaimed across the country. And it's even today, it's widely accepted as one of their best records. And I'll, I'll definitely agree with that. Um, wasn't Born to Follow is like one of my personal favorite tracks. Yeah, but Clarence White, Clarence, um, Clarence White, he also played in the Younger Than Yesterday. He, yeah, yeah, right. Uh, he, he, right, he did play on that album, I think, uh, just, you know, some guitar and stuff, but he was used even more. As later on, musician, you know, well, he would become a bird later yeah. on. You know, we'll talk about that. But he was a guy that they could depend on when they needed a certain sound on an album. Yeah. You know, so he, he would do that. Now, um, the wasn't born to follow song was was used prominently in the 69 movie Easy Rider. Yeah. And uh, during the making of Notorious Bird Brothers, Crosby would get fired. OK, from the band. Uh, they, they were tired of his attitude. He was egotistical. Okay, he thought who the hell he was, and they didn't care for the direction he was trying to take the band. 
Yeah. Um, what he would do is like at the Monterey Pop Festival in June of 67, Crosby, like in between songs, gave this long speech about the Kennedy assassination. Okay. And he says how, you know, in case you didn't know, there was more than one gunman. And, you know, he gives this whole story. And then he also went into at one point saying that all world leaders should be doing acid. <laughs> okay. So, you know, they didn't really need to, to have that going on. There was enough controversy. Okay. So the group at this point, the group is pretty much is that they don't odd. They got rid of this. They got rid of this guy. Yeah. Well, what he did also too, is he would fill in and play with like a rival group called the Buffalo Springfield. Yes. You know, kind of like a rival act of the birds. Being I remember the Buffalo. Yeah. They're, they're another good band. Yeah, I like. I don't like them that much. I like you know one or two songs, but you know Neil Young was in that band, and yep. you know a lot of the a lot of people came out of that, and went into bigger things. But uh, he 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 annoyed the band Crosby just by playing with the Springfield, and then like um, his single "Lady Friend" bomb, and he it just created a lot of tensions in the band. All right, so he was he was he just got. Uh, one day they just they just went to Crosby's house and fired him, basically. Uh, drummer Michael Clark would start to have creative differences in the band at this point, and he ended up quitting during the making of the Notorious Bird Brothers sessions. Yeah, he's another uh, one. Yeah, yeah. Now he would agree to do his his live commitments, so he didn't leave them in the lurch. But basically, they brought in Wrecking Crew drummer Hal Blaine to play on that album. And also another drummer named Jim Gordon. Um, in September, of Crosby, was it Hal Blaine from the Wrecking Crew? Yes, yes, yes. And he, you know, he's a, he actually just died, I think about two years ago, maybe three years ago. Um, wow. He, yeah, he played on a lot of albums. That guy. Um, in September, Crosby would not perform on the recording of the Goffin King written song "Going Back." He didn't want to play it. Okay when they were doing the sessions, he wanted the band to record one of his songs instead. He didn't like that they were using a Carole King uh, Goffin song, okay? They, he wanted them to sing, do one of his songs. But the song that he wanted them to record was a song called Triad. Yeah. Okay? And it's about a menage a trois. Okay? It's about a threesome. Yeah. And they didn't want to do the song. Okay, so he, later on, he would actually give it to the Jeff, Jefferson Airplane to do on their uh, 68 album Crown of Creation. And it's interesting because it's a it's a threesome song sung by Grace Slick. <laughs> <laughs> so she, <laughs> she definitely had some experience there to draw from. Yeah. Um, but the final straw was in October of 67 when McGuinn and Chris Hillman drove up to Crosby's house and officially fired him. Now, he got a large settlement of cash. I don't think it's ever been said exactly how much, but he had enough to buy a sailboat, so that's what he did. And he immediately began working with Stephen Sills and Crosby and, and, and Graham Nash, and that started the Crosby, Stills, and Nash, okay? Yeah. And occasionally, Neil Young. It was Crosby, Stills, <coughs> Nash, and Young, Okay. Now, during the 80s, the years later, Crosby was fighting his drug addiction. Uh, he had a bad cocaine problem. And yes. he went to, yeah, and he went to jail on those charges. He beat his drug addiction in jail, and he's still musically active. Now, do you know 
Do you know his connection with Melissa Etheridge? No, what's his connection? Okay, you know who Melissa Etheridge is, right? Yeah, singer. Yeah. Well, you you know her. You know she's openly gay, right? Yeah. Okay, well, she had a baby years back. And for many, many years, she would never say who the father was. Ooh. David Crosby. Wow. He donated his sperm. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So her and her partner could have a kid. Uh, she actually wouldn't say for many years and then uh and then she 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 gave it up and she said something like you know he's a musical genius and i wanted my kid to have you know like that kind of genes you know stuff like that um now after crosby left gene clark actually would return but it would only be for three weeks and it's believed that his contribution to the notorious bird brothers album was really minimal but, you know, once again, he wouldn't board a plane and he had to be let go. He just couldn't get past that. Uh, Michael Clark would come back for a brief time as well. OK, uh, but after, the, you know, at the end of the sessions. But again, he would be let go. So, so it was a revolving door there for a little bit. For a little bit there. I know, yeah, I mean, they, they made what was probably their most epic album at that point. And the band was just, you know, in total turmoil, which is how much you see that. How many times you see that a band has their best album and it all falls apart, you know? It's almost every time we talk about bands, like big super bands. Right. There's a pattern with this stuff, you know? Or or they'll Um, take a break or they just on top of each other. They'll take a break and not do something for one, then come back together. Exactly. Now, the Birds now was reduced to just McGuinn and Hillman, okay, being really the only original members. Chris Hillman brought in his cousin, Kevin Kelly, okay, to be the new drummer. Yep. And live shows performed at this time as a trio were not working out too good. So musician Graham Parsons was brought in to play keyboards. He would do that, and he would also eventually switch to guitar. So Parsons was known from his, uh, from his band, the International Submarine Band. And the interesting thing about them, and we are going to do a show about Grant Parsons. I've, I've, his name's come up so many times, and I've said that. He's we like are... a very interesting character. Yes, yes. And if you if you want to know further, there's a great documentary called Fallen Angel about him, if you have a chance to see it. When we when we do it, I'll send you a link. But uh, but Parsons was like a country guy, wasn't he? Totally country. And, and what yeah. he wanted to do was merge country and rock music. Fuse it. Okay, together. And his country rock, pretty much. Country rock. Well, there was no term yet. That didn't exist. Wow. Okay. Uh, The birds would really be one of the first acts to really do that. Probably the first act was the International Submarine Band, which didn't sell any records, but they had done this. This like, uh, I think I think uh, Grant Parsons called it like, you know, cosmic American music. Okay, this idea of like, you know, fusing country because he was very into traditional country. I mean, like serious country music. Okay, Uh, and rock and just merge it because he felt that they kind of came from the same place anyway. And, you know, they did. Okay, because because rock and roll, when it started, you know, half of it was country music. Right. Yeah. What country? Yeah, I mean, it was country influence. So 
his thing was let's you know let's merge it together for this this new kind of genre. But but um, you know who also did that? Like Johnny Cash kind of did that. Well, but Bob Dylan was sort of getting there, okay? Because by '69 he would release National Skyline. Um, yeah. But but Sweetheart of the Rodeo, which is what we're we're going to be talking about now, was really the first country rock album by a big band. Okay, like where you had a major band change its style to become country. Okay, it had never happened before. No. Uh, you know, um, Dylan would do it on, on National Skyline. He would that be kind of his country album in a way. Um, the Stones would start flirting with country by 69. You had Keith Richards uh, sing You Got the Silver. That's a country song. Yeah. Uh, uh, Stuff Off a Beggar's Banquet is definitely country. Uh, by 68, 69, bands were going in that direction. Um, now, the Grand Parsons era of the, of the band, of the, of the band, the birds would be brief. But to me, in my opinion, and, and may, you know, some may disagree, but I find it their most interesting time. Okay. Because it, 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 it was such a radical shift for them to decide to do a country album. And Parson, Parsons was a very strong personality. And he kind of like was, you know, eventually he would kind of sort of take over the band and that would be a problem and it would lead to him leaving. But in the beginning, his, he was very assertive, okay? And he had this passion for traditional country music and he wanted to marry it to rock and roll. And it was just this optimism and McGuinn and Hillman loved it. They loved the idea. We're going to do this, okay? And what he wanted to do was kind of bring country music to the youth masses. And he kind of um, did. He did. And, and it was a really bold move by the birds. Um, Chris Hillman himself, the bass player, had a strong country and bluegrass background. He had played in bands like that. So he was familiar with some of the, of the what, you know, Parsons wanted to do. Um, McGuinn was really the only member that kind of needed a little bit of convincing. All right. But Parsons assured him that going into the country world, it would increase their declining audiences. Okay. And translate into more money and a new creative respect for the band. McGuinn at the time had his own ideas. Okay. He was thinking about doing this double album covering all the popular music of the 20th century. Okay. And it would be like, it would start off with like mountain music and then, uh, uh, you know, ragtime music, bluegrass, folk, country, rock and roll, and then go into like some kind of like keyboard space music. <laughs> I mean, was, weird that, shit. I mean, it's some weird shit, but you know what? It, it would have been interesting to hear the band do all those different kinds of music. Um, on March 9th, 1968, the birds went down to Nashville, Tennessee, and the Columbia Records studio down there, okay? They brought session musician Clarence White with them, and on March 15th, the band appeared on the Grand Ole Opry, all right? They performed the Merle Haggard song, Sing Me Back Home, yeah, Parsons' own song "Hickory Wind," and that would be on uh, 
on Sweetheart of the Rodeo. He would also do that solo himself later on. Uh, the performance itself was sketchy, and the fans at the, the Opry didn't like the birds. All right. These were hardcore country fans, and they didn't accept these kind of like long haired hippies playing their music. Nah. <laughs> okay. Now, the band got booed and heckled. And, and because they were called the birds, they, was, they were going like tweet, tweet at them. They were like saying tweet, tweet, making fun of their name. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, yeah. Now, it's, you know, I mean, what, one thing that, that people, I don't know, if you don't know about Nashville, is it's, it's really like a machine, okay? The music business in Nashville is like a machine. It sucks you in, spits you out, and, you know, you got to go with it or you have problems, okay? And they, they, here was this, this, you know, a, a lot of the music in, at that time in country music, people wrote for you. Not everybody wrote their own stuff. You know, guys like Johnny Cash did, but even Johnny Cash would sing other people's songs too. Yeah, of course. Right? But, you know, the birds were, were – if they were covering anybody, it was pretty much Dylan yeah. okay, or Pete Seeger. He did, they did a couple of his songs. But for the most part, they wrote their own music. They didn't need anybody to write to them. And uh, But they started with covers in the beginning, you know? Yeah, well, they did. They did. And most, most bands in that time did. Even the Stones did a lot of covers before they ever started writing their own stuff. All right. They were afraid to write their own stuff. They didn't have confidence in writing their own stuff. And then they just did it. But uh, the birds, you know, went down to Nashville and they were like in hostile territory. I mean, country music at that time was conservative. It was patriotic. It was not what the counterculture in California was preaching. It was the opposite. Okay. So you had this kind of like long haired hippie guys interested in doing country going down into the country capital of the of the of the United States and basically saying, you know, Hey, we're here, let's make some music. But these people didn't like them just because of what they looked like. You know, that's how it's fucked up, you know, but that's how, that's how it was. And they were a big band. They were, they were, you know, million selling record band and the country people didn't care because it was such a different world, Rob, you know, like country music, even today, it, it you don't have if a country music is big, a country music song is big. You don't really hear it on top forty radio, right? Nah, not all the time. They, they have their own shit, their own stations. Yeah, okay? and that's how country music's always been. So you didn't have that crossover in those days. That would happen later. You know, at times country music would cross over, but you know, in those days it it didn't all that much. Now. Parsons Control, okay, or I should say, uh, the song You Ain't Going Nowhere, okay. Uh, well, I'm, hold on a second here, excuse me. Okay, I'm sorry. Now, the band, after, uh, after they did the Grand Ole Opry, they, they appeared on the country music DJ Ralph Emery show, okay, on WSM in Nashville. Emery mocked the band during the interview. And he even claimed he even claimed that he hated their new song, You Ain't Going Nowhere. He said, I hate the song. You know, Parsons would later night uh, later write a song called Drugstore Truck Driving Man about that interview. Okay, how that went. 
and the band would have a lot more incidents like this, you know, while they were down in Nashville. They just were not treated nicely. <clears throat> they would be there for about a month and record the album called Sweetheart of the Rodeo. Then in April and May, they would finish the album up in Los Angeles with the mixing. And it was during this time that Parsons' kind of controlling nature began to become a problem. He began pressuring McGuinn to recruit either J.D. Manis or Sneaky Pete Kleino as the band's official steel pedal guitar player. He wanted them to have like an official steel pedal guitar player in the band. McGuinn refused. And in response, Parsons asked for a raise. He was on salary, believe it or not. He never, even though he was considered a member of the Birds, he never signed with Columbia. And he just was like on salary the whole time he was in the band. So he asked for a raise. And, you know, McGuinn refused. And he also said the band should be called in the future, the next album, should be called Grand Parsons and the Birds. <laughs> so he, his shit was going in his head. Yeah, right? it was definitely going to his um, head. Now, Chris Hillman, who was kind of Parsons' biggest supporter at that point, he even was starting to get sick of him. And this power struggle between McGuinn and Parsons would ensue for a while. The song You Ain't Going Nowhere was the first single of Sweetheart on the, of the Rodeo, and it was clearly a country song, but McGuinn singing the impression to fans was that it was, it was still kind of like McGuinn's band, if you yeah. listen to it. He still, he still had control of the band at that point. But Parsons' control was starting to get a little less because what would happen is McGuinn removed his vocals in the final mix of the album on the track You Don't Miss Your Water and replaced it with his own vocals. He did that on the Christian Life song and 100 Years From Now as well. Those were songs that Graham sang and then McGuinn took his vocals off and put him on. Okay, and the reason he did it was there was this impending legal entanglement with Parsons last label called LHI Records, headed by Lee Hazelwood. And he claimed Parsons was still signed to him. But once McGuinn removed the vocals, Hazel dropped any threats of of a suit. Now, McGuinn had said later on it was really all just this big misunderstanding but he had removed the vocals and replaced them with his own because Parsons was trying to take over the band. And he just said, no, that this ain't going to happen. I'm taking your vocals off that. Okay. So Parsons vocals were left on the tracks. You're still on my mind, life in prison and Hickory yeah. wind. So if you think about it, he left it on three songs. He removed it on three songs. So who was he to do six lead vocals? On a bird yeah. album. He just got he just, he just got in the band for God's sake. Okay, so that's a lot. Right? Let me ask you a question. Why did this band had so many power struggle? Because they were all big egos? All these guys all have big egos. Yeah, I would think so. I think that's it. Now McGuinn always seemed like a down to earth kind of guy. Okay, to yeah. me. Okay. You know, but who knows? I mean, you know, he may say this is my band at that point. Because it really was. Even Hillman wasn't the original guy. He, he was there at the very beginning, but not originally. Because originally they didn't have a bass player. Okay? So Hillman came in, but he was there early enough you could say he's an original. But McGuinn, once Crosby left and Clark had left, 
it was McGuinn's band. Yeah, right? of course. Yeah. So here you got Parsons. You know, Parsons was an interesting cat. I mean, he was very wealthy. He was a trust fund kid. His parents had a, a big business. I think he was from North Carolina. I forget exactly where he was from. But they had a they had a big business uh, going, and, and his father left him a lot of money, millions of dollars. And, you know, he just had this, like, musical career, but he never really had struggle. Okay? So he was, like, definitely a guy that, you know, I could see thinking who the hell he was. Yeah, of right? course. Yeah. Now, after this album's completion, the band flew to England to do a charity show at the Royal Albert yep. Hall. Um, the band was scheduled to continue to South Africa after England. And it was during the UK trip that Parsons quit the birds. He claimed that he didn't want to play in racially segregated South Africa. They were still under an apartheid system. Wow. But the, the birds, the birds knew about the apartheid system the only reason they agreed to play was they were told the the audience would not be racially segregated okay now we'll talk about what happened when 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 they went went down there in a second but the reason uh parsons really left the group had nothing to do with south africa it's because he had just became friends with keith richards (laughs) okay and he would be close, very close with Keith Richards. Uh, he would be involved with them during the making of uh, Sticky Fingers, during the making of Exile on Main Street. Uh, there's even rumors he plays on on that, though that's uncredited. Um, until his death in 73, uh, him and Richards were very tight. They used to go out to like Joshua Tree in the desert and trip and you know, just howl at the moon and all kinds of shit together. <laughs> they were crazy. Um, and imagine them tripping balls out there in the desert. <laughs> in the desert, right? Just with two with guitars and playing. And what stuff. the fuck do you um, think they saw out there? Yeah, uh, UFOs, probably. <laughs> UFO, um, Indians, everything. <laughs> <laughs> now, one thing that uh, Parsons would do after leaving. Uh, the birds is he would start the Flying Burrito Brothers. Yeah, they were good too. The uh, Flying Burrito they, they Brothers. Were, they were an interesting band. Uh, they would feature Chris Hillman from the Birds. Okay, he would when he leaves the Birds, he joins up with with Parsons again. Uh, Parsons unfortunately would die of an accidental morphine overdose combined with alcohol in September of seventy three at the age of twenty six. We're going to do a show on Parsons. I think that's going to be really interesting. He can be like uh, for um, the New Year's. He can be on the one of the first yeah. thing we do in January. That sounds like a good idea. Um, now, the South African tour, okay? The band continued down there without Parsons, and they recruited their roadie Carlos Bernal briefly as a rhythm guitarist, so he was playing with the band on stage. The tour was a disaster, okay? <laughs> um, okay, the, ba- the band was, was assured that these the audience would not be segregated and they were okay uh but the the band was kind of under rehearsed at that that point and the audiences were not impressed with the with with the shows they didn't like it who's this guy on stage he's your roadie you know that kind of stuff okay and this guy he was a roadie but he didn't know how to play the songs as good as the birds so the songs really were not coming out good live um 
back in the U.S., the band was being attacked for even going to South Africa at all. Okay, because this was a time when people were starting to, you know, recognize what was going on over there, and and bands were refusing to play. Okay, so McGuinn assured the American public that they weren't there to, you know, show support to the apartheid system. They were there to challenge it. Okay. Uh, they, they would say things in between songs and stuff like that, and it would piss off the white South Africans down there. So it just was a, a controversy. They should probably have never yeah, done it. Yeah, it was a shit show. They, um, yeah, it was a total shit show. Uh, Sweetheart of the Rodeo would come out August 30th, 1968, eight weeks after Parsons officially left the band. Now, it's a perfect mix of country and rock and roll and was kind of officially the first attempt by a major rock band to do country music in that way. And it kind of got the term country rock on the map. Okay. Uh, Bob Dylan, like I said, <clears throat> would do National Skyline a few months later after Rodeo came out. But uh, and then you had the International Submarine Band with Parsons before that. But it really was the first major act doing a country album. Yeah. Yeah. Now, after Graham Parsons left, McGuinn and Hillman decided to recruit Sessions guitarist Clarence White as a full-time member. And that was in late July of 68. White had played in the studio with them on every album since Younger Than Yesterday. And Hillman was satisfied that White could play the older songs and the newer material good enough live. Okay. Shortly after joining, White expressed some dissatisfaction with the drummer Kevin Kelly. So he would persuade McGuinn and Hillman to fire Kelly and replace him with someone White had played with previously, and that would be drummer Gene Parsons, who was no relation to Graham. Okay? He just happened to have the same last name. Um, McGuinn, Hillman, White, and Parsons. This lineup would only last a month, okay? Because Chris Hillman would quit the birds over several issues, including yeah. one. Hillman was frustrated with the financial manager, Larry Spector, who supposedly had mishandled some financial matters. And there was a show at the Rose Bowl they did in September of 68, where Hillman and Spector got into a huge fistfight backstage. Slugfest, Okay. And Hillman slammed down his base after the, after the fight, and he quit the group right there. He said he was done. Hillman, right away, after leaving the band, would reconnect with Parsons, Graham Parsons, and he'd have a successful career with Graham in the Flying Burrito Brothers and a bunch of other projects he had later on. Um, now, the only original bird left at this point was McGuinn, okay? And he would find bassist John York, bring him in, um, as Hillman's replacement, York was a member of the band, uh, the, Sir, the Sir Douglas Quintet. All right. They were kind of like a 60s garage rock band. Um, they had a song called She's About a Mover, which was like a famous kind of garage rock yep. song. Um, he also played with Johnny Rivers and the Mamas and the Papas as well. So he had a pretty good. So pedigree. this is almost like a whole new lineup now. Yeah. Yeah. It's McGuinn and all yeah. the guys. Um, in October of 68, this new lineup went into the studio to record Dr. Birds and Mr. Hyde, okay? And it was an album with producer Bob Johnston that they brought in. 
Johnson had worked with Dylan, Johnny Cash, and Simon and Garfunkel. So he had a, you know, a good, a good thing going for him going into the studio with that, with working with these other people. Um, the album, again, was kind of a mix of country rock and psychedelia. Okay, it wasn't as country as Sweetheart of the Rodeo. Um, but McGuinn felt that Birds fans would be confused hearing any new voices in the band. And it's the only Birds record where McGuinn sings every song. Wow. Okay, he's on every song. Um, the album was released on March 5th, 1969. It got positive reviews, but was the lowest charting album in their history, peaking at number 153 in the That's U.S. That's pretty bad. Yeah, it is. And it did get to number 15 in the U.K. It got some good reviews on both sides of the Atlantic, despite the chart differences. So, you know, critically, up until this point, even in the United States, they're, they're still acclaimed. They're still critically acclaimed. But for some reason, it didn't always translate into sales. For some no. reason. Uh, now, the Dr. Birds and Mr. Hyde album has some outstanding tracks on it. All right. There's an instrumental called Nashville West. That's a great fucking. That's a good song. A, yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Even though it's yeah, instrumental, it's, great. it's a very good song. Yeah. And then the traditional song, Old Blue, yeah. okay, is, was known on that album. But, um, the, the thing that I like about that album, when you listen to it, is is it's the first time they made use of this new device that Gene Parsons invented for Clarence White, and it's called a string bender. Okay, and what it was was uh, Clarence White used to mess around in the studio and kind of like he would he would bend his strings when he was playing, or he would have uh, Parsons on it while he was you know on the strings while he was playing and it would create kind of like a a pedal pedal steel sound okay and um the pedal steel was that you know sound all over sweetheart of the rodeo hold on one second i got a door i know i heard that. <laughs> Sandy, get, get out of here. so wow cookie's going nuts at first i thought there was a chicken in there Oh, no, it's, it's, it's Cookie. So um, he, he had asked Clarence, uh, Clarence had asked uh, Parsons to kind of invent something because he was very good at, like, designing things for instruments. Something that would allow him to be playing because he says, I kind of need, like, a third hand to do this. Okay? And he said, well, what if we put something in your guitar strap? And it turned out that's what he built. And it's something called a string bender. If you watch White play, he would like kind of shift his shoulders. Sometimes. Sometimes. And it would like pull on a little contraption that was at where the strap is, hits the guitar. Okay, where it's connected. And it, it worked on the, in, you know, on the inside of the guitar. It would pull on the strings and it would create this like pedal steel sound. So it's pretty cool because you hear it through the whole album and you think he's got, you know, a pedal steel guy playing with him, but it's not. It's Clarence White doing That's it. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, yeah. Now, anybody listening tonight, if uh, I, I've been trying to find if anyone else had ever used this thing. So if anybody listening knows if this string bender was used by any other guitar player in any band, I would love to know because I've never heard of it being used by anybody else. So 
I just got that question to throw out. I don't think no. Now, that string bend of sound would exist for the rest of the band's history. They would use it, okay, as long as Clarence was in the band. Um, In May of 69, the Birds issued a non-album single of Bob Dylan's Lay Lady Lay, and they hoped that it would kind of reverse this commercial slip that they had in the States. It didn't, okay? It would only go to number 132. Uh, Birds producer Bob Johnston took it upon himself to kind of overdub a female choir, okay, on the single. And the band was not told about it. And they were furious with him, okay? And they refused to work with Johnston anymore. Uh, They would bring back Terry Melcher at this point, okay? Uh, He had done their first two albums, Mr. Tambourine Man and Turn, Turn, Turn. Uh, But Melcher was smart. He insisted that he also manage the band, (laughs) he was like i'm not going to recreate that same shit from 1965 with jim dixon okay so not only was he with the producer he was managing them as well and they agreed to that prior to the release of a new album he wasn't bad no melcher do you remember who else melcher produced that we talked about um jesus christ i'm brain fart the name, the name came up a couple months ago. Who was the other one? Paul Revere. And the oh, Rangers. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He, they, they, I don't know if you remember, but they when, he, when they got signed, I think it was to Columbia, okay, that they went to the same studio. Yeah. And they, they, they said that, you know, Melcher was working with the birds and stuff yeah. like that. So it was at the same time. Um, uh, prior to the release of this new album with Melcher, the band's former producer, Gary Usher, managed to acquire some old demos from Jim Dixon, dating to 1964, the World Pacific Studio Sessions. Wow. And a new album of these demos, okay, would come out on Usher's label, Together Records, and it was called Birds Pre-Flight. Pre-Flight, and they spelled it like P-R-E-F-L-Y-T-E, Pre-Flight. And it would come out and it would be like this like demos and stuff stuff that they really probably didn't think was good enough to come out but it, it got enthusiastic reviews it said it was great uh and it actually would outsell the last birds album peaking at number 84 how crazy is that yeah and you know what they probably didn't see a dime of it man they probably didn't see nah. a dime of it because the, nah, because it was probably all Stuff under the uh, under the control of uh, Dixon, probably. Okay, but between June and August of '69, the Birds worked with Terry Melcher to complete the Ballad of Easy Rider yep. album. And musically, it was mostly covers album, and it was kind of like traditional and country rock songs. Three originals were there. Okay, the Ballad of Easy Rider. Okay, and which was written by uh, McGuinn uh, and Bob Dylan, though he kind of like goes uncredited with that. That's a good song, The Ballad of Easy Rider. Um, It was meant to be the theme song of the movie Easy Rider, but they didn't use it that way. They only used like this acoustic version of the song that was credited to uh, Roger McGuinn alone. It's featured in the movie, but not the full Birds version of the song. Um, The song I Wasn't Born to Follow, okay, that was uh, that was definitely, you know, used quite a bit through Easy Rider. You're familiar with Easy Rider, right? Do you remember the the scenes when 
they're, they're in, they're on the motorcycle in the beginning going across country and they pick up that hippie hitchhiker. Yeah. And he, and he takes, and he takes them to like this commune. Yeah. yeah that's when, you know, well, when you, when, when they're picking them up, he's hitchhiking, uh, that you can hit, they play, I wasn't born to follow. And it was specifically at when they stop, it was that part of the song where all like the phasing kicks in. Yeah. You know, it has that kind of psychedelic. That's a great, that's a great scene too. I mean, when they go to the commune and then when they go to, you know, they hang out with them with all the women, the kids and everything. And then the, you know what's funny, like pretty hippies. much Camarantino's stole that scene in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Why do you when say that? When they went to the, um, when we with Brad. Oh, 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 like the man yeah. thing? Well, you know, it wasn't stealing. It really happened like no, that. It <laughs> happened like that, but I think Carantino probably did a little tribute to the, to yeah, the Easy Rider. That's the way this guy thinking. He said, oh, we'll have the same thing like an Easy Rider. This guy go back to the point that they had the fight scene and the, and the, and the yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, easy, I watched Easy Rider last night. I hadn't seen it in a while. But I watched it last night, and it it holds up. It's still a great movie. I haven't, you know what? I should see that movie one day. I haven't seen that movie in a long time. Yeah, yeah. It's still it's still a great flick. Um. Okay, where am I here? Okay. That went. Um. Scene you were talking about. Yeah, we're yeah, yeah. About, okay. um, I guess we're almost getting to the point that we're gonna start talking about Jesus is all right. Well, right. Now, the Ballad of Easy Rider, okay, would be popular, would peak at 36 yep. in the States, and it'd be their best charting album in, like, over two years. Yep. Um, now, one standout for that song uh, on that album is Jesus is Just All Right, all right? I always liked that song, um, but the song you usually hear is the Doobie Brothers yeah. version that came out years later. But the one with the birds did in 69, I think that's the better version. Um, now, just prior to the release of the Ballad of Easy Rider, uh, Jim York was was asked to leave the band and his commitment to the band kind of became in doubt because he would refuse to do older songs. He didn't want to do songs from like before he was in the band. OK, and he would, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd get replaced right away by Skim, Skip Batten. OK, and his recruitment at that point would begin like the most stable time for the band. Uh, there'd be very few lineup changes down the line. Um, this new lineup of McGuinn, White, Parsons, and Batten would make a conscious decision to tour relentlessly, okay? They wanted to become a much more accomplished live act. You know what I'm saying, yeah. Rob? They like, you know, they really wanted to kind of like be good because that was like, you know, 69, 70 you, you know, you still had Hendrix and everybody was influenced by him. And the idea of having like the, the greatest live show was really important. Yeah. So that's what they wanted to, to have a great show so people could talk about you. Right. Exactly. Now, in 1970, they felt it was time to do a live album, but they also had enough material written for a studio album as well. So producer manager Terry Melcher suggested that the band should release a double album. Uh, one record would be live and the other record uh, would be a studio record. OK, so also the band kind of mended fences with their ex-manager, Jim Dixon, and their ex-financial manager, Eddie Tickner. And they were brought back 
Okay. How many times so, yeah. in it doesn't happen too much, right? Huh? It doesn't happen too much with the management, yeah, but, but they brought yeah. him back, which was shocking. Yeah, well, their their financial guy Larry Specter quit the business. Okay, so they needed somebody, but they, you know, whatever whatever differences they had, it seemed like they they got over it. The two record album would be called Untitled, and it was released on September fourteenth, nineteen seventy, uh, to very positive reviews and strong sales. Featured it, okay. Got to number forty on Billboard and number eleven in the UK. Uh, the live side was taken from shows in 1969 at Queens College here in New yep. York and the Old Felt Forum in Madison Square Garden. Old Forum was always a great place. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, they were new live versions of Mr. Tambourine Man. Uh, you, so you want to be a rock and roll star, and there's a 16 minute version of Eight Miles High. That takes up one whole side of the record. Okay. They were they were like rearranging old songs, turning them into like long jams. Yes. Okay. Uh, they were almost becoming like a, a jam band. Okay. Uh, stuff that like the Grateful Dead was known for and things like that. Uh, you know, this was the this was the trend of live live bands at the time. The studio stuff was music written by McGuinn for a planned country rock musical called Gene Trip yeah. that him that him and him and uh, Broadway theater man Jock Levy were writing together. But the, the music, the, the musician, um, excuse me, the musical fell through. It didn't work out. And McGuinn ended up using the music for the album. The single for a song called Chestnut Mare was released October 23rd, 1970. But it only made it to number 121 on Billboard, but would remain a staple for FM radio through all the 1970s. I remember that song when I was a kid. I never knew it was a bird song. Until until years later. I was like, that does not sound like a bird song. But it is. It's just like, it has almost like a 70s, you know, one-hit wonder kind of song. (laughs) You know, it's an okay song. That it's about song, a, a guy. It, it's about a guy trying to get a horse. Yeah, but that song actually did better in the UK, right? It did. It would make it to number nine. That's amazing. Yeah. So, some you ever notice with this band that sometimes when they don't do good in America, they do good in the UK or vice versa. Yeah. So it it kind of like keeps them going. All you know? the bands, a lot of the bands do review. They do horrible here, and then they go to the UK. They like become fantastic. Right, right. So the you know the record company keeps them because they're big over yeah. there. At least they're making some money, right? Yeah. Um, the the birds would return off and on into the studio at this point, working on a new album between October of seventy and March of seventy one. In between touring, they would hit the studio to record this follow up to the Untitled album, and that would come out in June nineteen seventy one, and it's called Bird Maniacs. Um. Like I said, they were touring excessively when making this album. And kind of like as a result, some of the tracks recorded were underdeveloped. They they would leave to tour and put Terry Melcher in charge of everything. And him and sound engineer Chris Minshaw uh, tinkered with this album, especially in the mix. Yes. And he, they, they ended up bringing in uh, this arranger to do strings and horns. And they even brought a gospel choir in to many of the songs and they, they never told the band they were doing it. 
Um, when the band caught wind of what was happening to the mix, they asked Columbia Records to remix the album, but the label refused due to budget problems, and the album got released as it was. Now, in May of 71, right before the release of Bird Maniacs, the band went on a sellout tour in Europe and the UK, and it included a show at the Royal Albert Hall. Uh, this show would not see the light of day until 2008 when it was released as a live album. I've heard that album. I've never heard that album. That's it, yeah, I, I, I've heard it. It's, it's pretty damn good. Um, the band had received critical accolades on that tour. Okay, they were getting to be known as a great live act to see. Uh, the new studio album, Bird Maniacs, however, was killed by the critics at its release. Uh, it came out in June of 71, and it kind of, I don't know, man. I mean, Rolling Stone called them a boring, dead group. Wow. Yeah. The thing with that album is it doesn't have any real, like, bird sound, okay? it's There's no 12-string guitar, jangly guitar sound, nothing That's, like that. That and had it, more to do with the people mixing it, right? Not because of the birds. Oh Well, I, yeah, but I think the songs were weak, okay? It's actually considered their worst album, all right? Uh, however, it got to number 46 in the United States. It's- Okay, it didn't chart in the UK, so it actually did well, and that was probably based on the fact that people had seen them live and said, Okay, we're gonna buy their new no matter. Um, but to this day, it's considered like their worst album. Okay, the band decided to kind of lick their wounds at this point and get back in the studio and this time produce their own record, so they were done with Melcher at this point. Between, between July 22nd and July 28th, six days, in 1971, they recorded a new album worth of material. Columbia Records in October of 71 released A Bird's Greatest Hits Part 2, okay, and it was only released in the UK, but it didn't chart. All right, and then it would be released a year later in the United States, and it would, it would do moderately well, not, not that good. But the new studio album now titled Farther Along that they did themselves and recorded in only six days, yeah. it was like an attempt to be like more stripped down, more, more, more raw. Uh, they felt Birds Maniacs was way overproduced. And that album would come out in November of 71, Farther Along. Critically, it got better reviews than Bird Maniacs, but it did only peak at 152 on Billboard. And then not at all in the UK. Wow. So that was not good. Uh, the album was an attempt to kind of lessen the country rock sound and, and bring about like this 50s rock and roll. Okay. There's a song on there that sounds a little bit like Johnny Be Good. Okay. From Chuck yeah. Berry. Uh, Skip Batten and the infamous Kim Fowley wrote a song called America's Great National Pastime for the yep. album. Uh, that was going to be the single as well, and it, it bombed. It didn't chart. Now, the album's title track, Farther Along, was sung by Chris White with the rest of the group kind of harmonizing in the background. Gene Parsons, at this point, uh, would have problems in the band after the release of the Farther Along album. He had issues over his pay, uh, the band's direction at the time, and he would be fired in July. 
He would be quickly replaced by studio session drummer John Guerin. But by early 73, he would be replaced by a series of session drummers for a period of time. Now, after a show in Ithaca, New York, McGuinn fired bassist Skip, Skip Batten, saying his playing was just not up to par. And the remainder of the live shows of the planned tour featured original bassist Chris Hillman. He came back and he did two shows and he got paid $2,000 each. Wow. Not too bad for 72, 73, yeah, right? pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. On February 24th, 1973, Roger McGuinn disbanded the birds altogether in anticipation of a reunion, okay, of the original five-piece lineup, yeah. all right? But in July of 73, uh, Clarence White, their longtime guitarist, was killed by a drunk driver. He was loading his van with equipment after a show he was doing with another group, and he would get killed by this drunk driver. Graham Parsons would sing the song Father Along because Clarence White had sang it. Okay. He would sing it at his as a eulogy at White's funeral. Now, now, strangely enough, Parsons himself would be dead two months later of an overdose. That's crazy, man. Yeah. So it's scary times right there. Um, Plans for a full birds reunion with the original members had actually been discussed since like mid 72. There was a new label called Asylum Records started by David Geffen. And he offered each original member a lot of money to, to reunite. Okay. Now, do you remember who was on Asylum? Um, was it, um, wait up, were you asking? Yeah. Do you remember who we discussed with Asylum Records a lot? We, we interviewed him. Oh shit! Manitoba. Yeah, Dick Manitoba. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The the, the Manifest yeah. Destiny album, the second Dictators album, was on Asylum, and that was you know a couple of years later. But um, the Gwyn's house was going to be the place for this kind of impromptu reunion, and uh, it went this well. Was like but the original, almost every original man. Everybody: Gene yeah. Clark, Crosby, okay, uh, Hillman, okay. This was October of 72. Now, between October 16th and November 15th, 72, they booked to the uh, Wally Hyder Studios in Los Angeles to rehearse and record a new reunion album. Crosby, at this time, would persuade McGuinn to officially dissolve the Columbia Records Birds, which he did in February of 73. But the reunion album, simply titled The Birds, came out on March 7th, 1973 to mixed reviews. The album went to number 20. Everybody was happy to, you know, it sold pretty well, but it failed to kind of catch on really because of like this lack of a true bird sound. I don't know. They didn't have any 12 string guitar sound on it or anything of McGuinn's. I don't know what they were doing. Okay? They also evolved after all those years of doing that, you know, a band evolves, you know, yeah, but, you know, you would think if you're going to have your, your original lineup, that was the sound you would do, you know. I, I To me, it, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, they must have had different ideas, yeah. and I guess leaving that out was an idea. But um, Gene Clark had a song released as a single, okay, from that album, and it was called Full Circle. They were going to call the album Full Circle, which would have made sense. It was like they all came full circle. 
but they didn't. They ended up just calling it Birds. Uh, but that single didn't chart, all right? And the album didn't do well, you know, went top 20, but there were no hit singles off it. Uh, the somewhat negative reviews resulted into the, the this original lineup, like losing faith and going on. And there was a tour that was planned, but it never materialized. So each member kind of went on to have solo albums and work with other bands. Uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash would get together from time to time. Uh, McGuinn would play solo. Chris Hillman had projects. They all went different ways. Gene Clark had albums of his own. Um, in 1984, Clark, Gene Clark would take his own version of the Birds on tour. But McGuinn, Crosby, and Hillman weren't happy about this, and they said it was like a cheap show. Okay, I don't think they did any legal things against no. him, but they panned it. But Michael Clark, the original drummer, took his version of the Birds in the in the eighties, and David Crosby started a lawsuit against him on, uh, and they he called it uh, trademark infringement. Okay, uh, that's kind of cheesy, like the original drummer taking out a version, yeah. you know. But um, on January sixteenth, nineteen ninety one. The five original members would appear at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony inducting yep. them. And they would, put, they would play live together for the first time in many years. They performed Turn, 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 Mr. Tambourine Man, and I'll Feel a Whole Lot Better. And it would be the last time they would perform together because Gene Clark died later in 1991 of heart failure. Um, and in December 1993, Michael, Michael Clark would die. Uh, from alcohol-related liver disease. Yeah. So, you know, McGuinn is still out there. Uh, Hillman, I don't think, is out there much anymore playing. But McGuinn is still out there. Um, he's got a show at the Bergen's Art Center in New Jersey. I believe it's October 23rd, something like that. Uh, this show will be aired on October 5th for the birds that we're yeah. doing. So. I'd like to go to this show. You let's see. Go? Let's see if it's open. I don't mind going. We'll go to Jersey. It's no big deal. Not but I, 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 I'm pretty much telling you. I think I don't think it'll be open. Uh, well, hopefully but, it is. Let's see. But not uh, having shows in Atlantic City, trust me, a little concert hall, then they're not going to have it. Yeah, man. Well, I'm gonna try to find yeah. out. Uh, so that's all I got for you today. What wow, you man! What a what a history, man! From you know what? As bad as they were, they 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 didn't have that many band members still. Because there's some bands that we took, and they got you look at the list of band members, they got like 30, 40 members. <laughs> yeah, yeah, even the pretty things and all yeah. that, right? They had. Yeah, you know what? These guys that they even got to the point that they got to play one more show in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, yeah, but damn, man, holy shit! What a history! What a, and and all these guys and all the guys they got, they got up a good position that could also be lead singer. Which, amazing yeah yeah i mean the birds are one of those bands that just like the beatles they could have been individual solo acts or together yeah. it didn't matter they were they were that talented you know yeah even but cosby what a fucking douchebag cosby was <laughs> yeah, crosby, oh my god yeah. well at least he admitted yeah but it, it, it's <laughs> funny on the documentary how a lot of them was shit on him after a while <laughs> yeah it's true because he true. was an asshole but my other yeah. show, a lot of history. What was the, and this is a group that only lasted how long? Like really, only nine years. 
Yeah, like nine years. Yeah. But they took the one thing I can say about it, they fucking worked. They were also they were always in the studio. They were trying to make yep. music, which you know what to me that's the most impressive thing of bands, like you say in the sixty, these guys were just musicians. They were going there and rock it out and play. This is what they did. And and uh I remember seeing an interview not too long ago from uh with Paul McCartney and he brought that up. He said that people have asked him, you know, how did you work so hard in the in putting out two albums a year and touring? He said it was just expected of us. He's like, we were young. We were just doing what we were told, you know, by the record and, company. And that's what you had yeah, to do. I guess so, man. You know, you get thrown in that world. I guess if that's your life, man, you just get sucked in and that's what you do. And you're up from dawn till till. Till, till night, you know. Make it, hey, but you know what? It works for some people. Even and, and if they fucked up one album, they had another album to to be able to almost. It's almost like a throwaway album. Oh, all right, this that's good. Let me try this one. And to some, yeah. Or they put well, they would put out a single or something to try to make up for. Or it. The, Didn't always work, album. but you know. Yeah, yeah. All right, Mike. Great show, man. Um, this one's almost two hours, man. Yep, yep. Hope we didn't bore you all, but I think the show was worth it. I think it was good. Uh, the Birds are a very important band. Um, and, you know, Sweetheart of the Rodeo, to me, is my, you know, my favorite stuff from them. Uh, I love the early stuff, too. But, I mean, as an album, I think it was groundbreaking, and I think it took a lot of balls to make that yeah. album. And, uh, you know, what they experienced down in Nashville was not easy. And they they did it anyway, and they didn't care. And I I, I commend them. Let me them tell you, that. Nashville is like its own universe. It's heavily country, and every and everybody's playing music everywhere. Uh, every time I'm in Ibar, when we when we were in Ibar, I was always playing music on the jukebox from them. Yeah, definitely. So, Mike, what do we say every time after a long, wonderful show? How do we get in touch with you? Okay, you can find me on Instagram, RockerMike212. I'm also on Twitter, RockerMike3. And then I'm on Facebook under Michael Baker. Uh, also, check out the Rock Show podcast group page on Facebook featuring me and you, That's Rob. Okay. And, uh, you know, a lot of music on there every day. I try to put up interesting stuff about bands. Check it out. The Rock Show podcast group page. Where can and we you, find you, you can Rob? find me on anything getting lumped up. Um, um, you can find us on YouTube, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon if you guys really want to go on that. And if you really want to help us out and support the show, get one of the T-shirts at uh, Bonafide, Getting Lumped Up, or go to uh, Pro Wrestling Tea. Dot com getting lumped up and uh it's a great way to support the show um the shirts cost a few bucks and uh they'll get delivered to your house and we got all kind of different colors and sizes um and um we have the show once a week so every sunday morning um go wherever you listen to your podcast we'll have a brand new show on there on the podcast and then like the next day we'll have one on youtube with um pictures and uh pretty soon we'll start doing video so probably this is going to be one of a uh, few shows that we'll uh, do without you guys seeing our ugly mugs. And we're <laughs> going to be seeing our ugly mugs all the time. Yeah, yeah. And next week we got a great show. Uh, I believe it's the Steve Beatty show. 
he was definitely influenced by oh, yeah. birds. So it's a nice segue. And uh, we got a bunch of things lined up. Um, I'm basically booked up with shows through the end of November. December, we got some stuff planned. We're not going to tell you yet what it is. But uh, when we have it all figured out, we'll let you know it's going to be yeah, a big December's month. December's going to be a big month. And then probably when we are, uh, I think once January comes, we're probably going to do Parson. We definitely got to do Parson. Yeah, definitely Grant Parsons at the New Year. We'll That's probably it. figure we'll do the same thing we did last year. We'll do January, then we'll do Black History Month with musicians. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking of doing some blues acts like um, Muddy Waters and Howlin' oh, Wolf and stuff like that. Oh, who I think, guys, I know we never done, but I think we should even do like a Miles Davis look into the jazz. Miles Davis or even like um, Thelonious Monk or, or uh, Coltrane. Coltrane would be another great one. I was even thinking Ray Charles if you wanted to touch his fucking career. Yeah, maybe, maybe. We got a show on Marvin Gaye coming up. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. All right. Well, Mike, great show again. Um, we've been up for a while, man. We started this at nine forty-five, and it's like eleven thirty. <laughs> um, almost two hours again. And um, people, remember, don't get drunk. Don't get drunk. Get lumped up. See you next week. Have a good. Take care, people.